Well, we have a wonderful parable this morning. It's uh, in Matthew chapter 21. Would have been great if uh, we could have had this parable on the weekend of uh, Palm Sunday, but it didn't work out that way. So we get a bonus. Jesus had just uh, entered Jerusalem, and the parable begins in verse 33. But prior to this, uh, in entering Jerusalem, it's been triumphal. And in verse 10, as Jesus is entering the city, the people are asking, who is this? And the crowds are responding, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And then Jesus enters the temple and he drives out the money changers. And you're familiar with that. It is a a very bold act to overturn the tables of the money changers who are exchanging money for sacrifices. And Jesus says, my father's house is a house of prayer. It's not to be an emporium. (laughs) The Greek word is emporium, a a den of robbers, a, a place to make profit. And he heals people. And, of course, uh, he's asked about his authority. He leaves the city. He returns again to the temple after uh, a night away with uh, the disciples outside the city. And uh, he tells a parable that we looked at once before, the parable of two sons. And then he comes to the parable of the tenants. And the challenge has been, on whose authority do you do these things? And this parable is a response to that question. Let's begin reading at verse 33 of chapter 21. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, 
and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they, received, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Have you ever had a, a, covenant, a coveted responsibility taken and given to another? I think this happens to us when we're children. I've seen it with my grandchildren. For example, one is given instructions and the privilege of using an iPad. But rough handling or abuse is chastised and warnings given, but repeated misuse and disregard is then treated by taking the iPad and giving it to another grandchild. Now, does that bring back maybe some memories for you? Maybe it was your bicycle. You got a brand new bike and you rode it where you weren't supposed to ride it. So mom and dad said, okay, now, maybe they didn't give it to someone else, but there was a time out, so to speak. I uh, tried to think of uh, similar experiences of my own as a young man, but I couldn't think of any. I was looking for maybe an occasion. Uh, I, I could only think of a, you know, a time when my parents took the use of their car away, but they didn't give the car to someone else. I couldn't think of an occasion or an experience as a responsible adult where I had a privilege or responsibility taken from me and given to another. Uh, perhaps I just have conveniently and psychologically redacted my own history. But I could think of an example of someone responsible to me. And in that case, I assumed a position in which I inherited a number of people working under me. I take a certain pride in the gospel and the patient redemption and rehabilitation of other people that might otherwise get the Donald Trump treatment. But in this case, the man was given repeated encouragement and copious amounts of vision and inspiration and opportunity for correction and improvement. But in the end, his attitude was stubbornly out of whack his work ethic was poor, his skill set fluctuated with his private interests, and it seemed he was there only for the paycheck or that the job existed for him and was in no way bigger than him or worthy of greatness. And so his tenancy was taken from him and given to another. In other words, he was let go from his job. 
Perhaps you've been let go from a job. And from it, it was tough, it was difficult. You had to own up and face up to some things. But you were let go. And someone else was given that responsibility, that position. Here in this parable, Jesus confronts leaders, religious leaders, the builders, the builders of Israel, the temple leaders. His parable is a prophetic indictment. The people would certainly see it that way. Jesus was without confusion seen as a prophet of God. And here, he speaks as a prophet. He's the son, and we know that. But he speaks to the ears of the people as God's spokesman, as his prophet. And that's why I pointed out that in verse 11, the people see him as a prophet. And at the very end in verse 46, the religious leaders, although they want to arrest him, and now more than ever, they won't because they fear the people who regard him as a prophet. And this indictment, this verdict is a promise of punishment. And they will have their tenancy, their role as tenants, taken and given to others. They have the awesome responsibility, the privileged responsibility of leading God's people but instead, they've taken ownership. They've turned the temple from a house of prayer into a market of personal commerce to enrich themselves. They've claimed devotion to God for themselves. They've supplanted God, which is to say they've bumped him for drawing devotion of the people to themselves, as though creating an audience for themselves instead of for God. They've certainly cast aside Jesus, his voice, they do not regard as the voice of God. And certainly, as it will be revealed, and as the conclusion makes clear, they don't recognize him as the cornerstone or God's son. And they've consumed the charity, the grace, the love of God. In the eyes of the people, they lead on God's behalf. They serve in his authority, yet they fail to bear God's honor. They bear their own. They fail to build God's kingdom, and they fail to bring fruit to God. Therefore, Jesus says to others, the tenancy of God's vineyard will go. 
Now there's a warning here for us. But it's directed more at me than at you. We each can grasp that God's given us everything. And I could cite a number of verses, but Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Just to cite one example. And I draw a parallel, you see, because I'm thinking how we read in verse 33 that the owner has created this vineyard and he's planted it, walled it, he's built a watchtower and we saw some beautiful vineyards and gardens in Jerusalem and on the edges of Jerusalem with watchtowers and walls. Some things don't change. And yet, because of the abuse of and the misuse of this grace, this charity, God has given the responsibility and the opportunity to others. He's given the tendency to others. And although you may not see yourself as a leader, in a way we're all leaders. We all have a certain tendency because we are all priests in Christ. We talk about the priesthood of believers. We're given a tendency of God's name, of God's honor, of God's grace, of God's kingdom. And as the other tenants, we're expected to make something of his everything. Now, I really see kind of a main point here for us in application to our lives. This is a, a strong reminder. It's a strong reminder to me, and it's a strong reminder to us. Leave it not to others to make something of God's everything. And in this uh, parable, we see that to bear God's honor, we're to cultivate, not to claim his devotion. We're to cultivate devotion unto God, not claim devotion for ourselves. And to build God's kingdom, we're to commend, not cast aside his cornerstone. And we'll talk about that. And to bring God's fruit as good tenants, indeed, we're to convey, you know, to confer, to spread about. We're to convey, not consume his charity. To bear God's honor, we're to cultivate his devotion. In verse, 30, verse 38, it says, on be, the tenants are speaking, the owner, he's come to 
to receive his portion of the harvest. And he sends messengers, and the first are beaten, killed, and stoned, which shows kind of a hardening of intent, you know. (laughs) And then he sends others, and they get the same treatment. And then he sends his son, and they drag him out of the vineyard, probably on the grounds of purity. And they kill him outside the vineyard. They're claiming for themselves what has been devoted to God. There's a, there's a harvest, and a portion of it is devoted, devoted to him. And they understand that. But they've turned things upside down, and now Jesus incriminates the leaders of the people who, like tenants of God's vineyard, claim for themselves what's devoted to him. The people hearing this story, this parable, would immediately go to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, where God plants a garden and builds a wall and a watchtower. And the, the garden reflects his people. The vineyard reflects his people. This is a story about God and his people. And Jesus as the Son which is made absolutely clear when he talks about the cornerstone, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But it's the Son who is the authority who comes on behalf of the Father, in the Father's name. You can't get a higher authority than the Father himself. And there, I would, I would even... I personally tend to believe that the father gave the son title of the vineyard so that he was the owner and able to transact according to Jewish law, which was a part of my PhD dissertation, to transact business in the name and in the authority of the father, which is something that we see throughout the New Testament of Jesus, that he comes in the name. He seeks not his own glory, but he seeks the glory of the father. In fact, in John chapter 3 and again in chapter 13, Jesus says, all things have been put into the hands of the Son, which is a transaction according to Jewish law where when you actually transfer ownership, you put it into their hands. So he comes in his name, and in effect, he's saying in his coming, I'm here to restore the vineyard to the owner, and they kill him which is a huge abuse of ownership. Leadership under God is really, really different than leadership in the world. And we need to understand that. I really got that when I went to the church in South San Francisco back in the 80s. You know, that was the first time that I, I mean, I became a pastor. And uh, I didn't get a badge I didn't get a, you know, a belt with a gun. And there, yet there were times I wanted to sling people, you know. But I had, I mean, how does a pastor get people to do things?
What authority do I have? Can I throw people in jail? And I began to contemplate, how, how is it that I do this thing? And the fact of the matter is, is that leaders within the people of God, there isn't any authority that a leader has. The only authority is Jesus. You confer, you offer me a certain authority. You allow me, you permit me to have some influence in your life. Just like it was among the people with the prophets. You concede it. I don't come with it. And the authority that you concede is not my own. It's the authority of Jesus. And in effect, you're saying, I'll follow to you. I'll listen to you. I'll cooperate with you. I'll march with you. I'll let you lead me because I trust you are leading me in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. That's the authority. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 18, verse 6, Woe to you who cause any of these little ones, these who believe in me, to stumble. And he said that to his disciples. In chapter 5 of 1 Peter, Peter says that we are under shepherds. He's the chief shepherd. In other words, uh, if you can imagine a big flock, and there are these under shepherds who are what? Helping the flock move in the direction of the chief shepherd. The paradox of being a leader in Jesus Christ is that Leaders lead by following. The better the leader, the better the follower. It's as simple as that. And that's true, and it's, as it were, a paradox of all Christians. In fact, we're all intended to be leaders in the sense that we lead others in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. But we're only leaders in as much as we're good followers. And so you see authority and bearing God's name, building his kingdom, serving the Lord is all about honoring him. There's no place for selfish gain or ego. Sometimes it might be misrepresented that way when you don't get your own way, but generally that's when people part company, and I've found this again and again. I don't know if it was, uh, it, it certainly became rife after Watergate, 
under the Nixon administration such a, a disenchantment with authority. Do we believe anybody is a true leader anymore? Truly selfish? Truly committed? Do we believe that there are leaders out there that are willing to lay down their lives to take a back seat to suffer abuse on behalf of a greater cause because they live for someone that's greater than themselves, and yet that's supposed to be the profile and the resume of each and every Christian. When Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, we seek not our own interests, but the interests of others. And then he gives us our model, Jesus Christ, starting in verse 5. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. I think the ugliest display of God. And you see, there are many. In fact, we, if we name the name of Christ, we display him. The ugliest display of God, the ugliest display of Jesus is human selfishness cloaked as a lamb of God. No, the tendency is going to be given to others. And I'm not surprised. We would do the same. You would do the same. What are you vested in? What is your cause? If you give others responsibility in your cause, in your first concern, in that for which you live your life and invest not only who you are but your resources, and that person that you call alongside and give responsibility in the pursuit of and the elevation of that which you've given your life to, if they're not on board, you're going to give the tendency to someone else. It's just so plain sense. And that's what this parable is all about. Let's not leave it to others to make something of the everything that God has given us. Let's show what he's really like to a world that's yearning to see God, see him in Jesus Christ. To bear God's honor, cultivate his devotion, to build his kingdom, commend his cornerstone. Don't cast it off. Verse 42, Jesus says, haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. First of all, this is just beautiful. This is the way God works. That which the builders have rejected, God says, that's my cornerstone. And the beauty of it is that's the way God works. He works with rejects. He works with you and me. And he builds beautiful things. But in this case, and by the way, this is a, a part of the body of Psalms called the Hallel. You know, have you ever say the word hallelujah? When you say hallelujah, you're saying hallel, 
Hallel, you, Hallelu is you praise. Hallel is praise. Hallelu is you praise. It's a command. Yah stands for Yahweh, stands for the Lord. Hallelujah. And these psalms are given to praise to the Lord. Psalm 118, they run from 113 to 113 to 118. 118 is kind of the capstone of the Hallel psalms, the praise psalms. And toward the very end comes this cornerstone reference. It's so beautiful because there's an allusion to God's election of Israel, the smallest of the peoples, the overlooked, the disregarded, those considered weak. I mean, you see the heart of the gospel, and that which was rejected of no use has now been made the cornerstone, and this tells us a great deal about the authority of the Son, because a cornerstone... Some of you, I imagine, are know well, maybe from personal experience. I got a dose of this when I was in Ecuador, and we were laying the foundation of a building. We, we poured, the concrete was poured, it was, and now we were going to build the walls. And the maestro, who was, um, you know, a local Ecuadorian, we were all there on the site at the crack of dawn, ready to start building, start putting up the walls, but he had to set the cornerstone, and it took a, quite a while. We were sitting around having coffee, having a good time. The conversations ran on, but the maestro was setting the cornerstone because the entire building was plumbed. In other words, coordinated by the setting of the cornerstone. Everything is fit and if it's built right, it's going to be built according to the cornerstone. And that's the importance of Jesus. Everything is fitted to Jesus. As leaders, that's the way it is. As Christians, that's the way it is. You know, what's fascinating is that there's a real play on words here that uh, because he's told the story and they've killed the son. They've killed the son. The word for son is ben. Ben is the word son in Hebrew, in Aramaic. The word for stone is eben. In fact, we have an occasion in Josephus when the Jewish people were defending Jerusalem against the Romans, and there were factions within the walls. They put they put scouts on the walls, and when the Romans would catapult these huge stones at the people, the scouts would yell, the sun's coming. The sun's coming, literally. But it was a slur of stone for sun, Eben for Ben. The, 
Stones coming, the sun's coming, and that's exactly the way. In fact, it's so striking. I don't think there's anything mystical about it, but Josephus has the very words that in his text are used of Jesus in the New Testament. But the point is, is that no one would miss the fact that they've killed the sun, and then Jesus says, the cornerstone, the ebon rejected, is the ben. And it's that cornerstone upon which he's building his kingdom. And then he draws a comparison between the vineyard and the kingdom and between the tenants and those others to whom the kingdom is going to be entrusted that they might truly honor and lift up Jesus Christ. Everything is plumbed by the cornerstone. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, Jesus Christ heads up the entire economy and administration of God. There are other ways in which Jesus is honored in the New Testament as the cornerstone. And it becomes very important in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 and 12. The quotation of Psalm 118 applied by the early church to Jesus. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 8, where we are told we are living stones because he is the cornerstone. Tim Keller said, as things are brought back under Christ's rule and authority, they are restored to health, beauty, and freedom. We all need a cornerstone. Do you ever, some of you have walked with the Lord a long time like I have. I've forgotten. Thank, thank you, Lord, for such grace. I've, I've forgotten the turmoil, the drama the heartache, the depression, the darkness that was upon my life before Jesus Christ, the aimlessness. We all need a cornerstone, but so does the world. He's not ours to keep. And to bring God's fruit, the third thing I want to draw our attention to in verse 41 and 43, we're to bring his fruit and convey his charity First, the crowds say in verse 41, Jesus says, what do you think they'll do with these tenants when the owner comes? And what, it's not Jesus who says this, it's the people. In other words, this is just what anybody would expect. The owner will put the tenants to death and lease the vineyard to other farmers. The word is literally farmer. Do you know that the word George is the Greek word for farmer? That's for free. Can, at your next party, uh, get together, you can wow them with that. Yeah. George. When you say George, you're saying farmer in Greek. But here it refers to the, the vineyard tenders. And it's going to be given to other vineyard tenders. But then Jesus turns around and says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to, to people producing his fruits. In other words, he sets us all up. He gives us all we need. He sustains us, which is what I mean by charity. But we're not just to consume it. 
to be sponges or dark stars or black holes where we just suck in and take in and take in. We're to convey it. That's how we give it unto him. And i got to put a plug in for gratitude because the very word gratitude is, it acknowledges grace. That's what gratitude is. They're built from the same stem, grace and gratitude. They're words connected. One is the expression and the other is the response. Gratitude ought to be the banner of our lives as Christians. We live in a shark tank. Do you ever watch that show? I understand why they go on there, but they got to sell their souls to get the kind of funding and resources they need to get their business to the next level. That's the way the world works, and yet we sit and watch it. <laughs> you know, look at them asking for the guys everything to just get something. That's not the way God is. He gives us everything, and he says, will you give me something back? C.S. Lewis said, the sh- I, I read this this week, and i, I got to fit this in. It's so good. So write this down. The surest way of spoiling a pleasure is to start examining your satisfaction. The surest way to spoil a pleasure is to start examining your satisfaction. When is it when we start to to examine our satisfaction that we don't come up short? That we don't think that somehow we deserve more or we have been wronged or shortened. Look at that other person. Look at that person. Remember a couple of weeks ago I said there are two words that we have... Desire and deserve. They're so similar in sound and spelling. But what a difference and what a different destination. If you set your GPS to deserve, it's going to take you a place that's totally opposite of the place you'll go that it'll take you if you set your GPS to desire. It's amazing in our eyes, they respond to what God has done, taking the stone that was rejected and making it the cornerstone. What can God do with you? If you'll give him your something. I, uh, I read about an amazing discovery you know, science has discovered um, antimatter and dark matter. Are you familiar with antimatter, dark matter? Now science, and I don't know if you've caught this, it's breaking, but science has discovered doesn't matter. <laughs> and their studies and their research have shown that doesn't matter doesn't have any effect on the universe whatsoever. It causes me to think how much of our resources we're pouring in to doesn't matter. You stand with me?
Leave it not to others to make something of his everything. Be thinking about that. What would that something be outfitted with his everything in Christ that God would call you to today? Maybe this morning you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He isn't the cornerstone of your life. And yet, inside, something that's beyond certainly my words or my ability to, to advocate for Jesus, there's the moving of His Holy Spirit and the compunction of God Himself. If you would like to give your life to Jesus Christ, make that which others have discarded the cornerstone of your life. It's our prayer. I'm going to be here along with the elders and pastoral staff. If after I pray you would like to come and make that known, pray, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, make him your cornerstone, I invite you to do that. God compels you to do that. Maybe there's something on your heart that you came with this morning that needs to be aligned and plumbed according to the cornerstone. Pray with us about that. But don't go home and just leave it at the side. Set it in its place according to the plumbing of your life with Jesus. Maybe you're mindful of somebody else's hardship or difficulty and you would ask for prayer this morning. We invite you to come. Whatever is on your heart, if you want to pray with us, we'll be here to pray with you as we close. God bless you. Make it a great week. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we want to give him our right, the rightful place in our lives. We do love you. And we thank you for all that you've given us in him. You're everything. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, God bless you.